software engineering is harder than it should be. There are many people who have an app idea that they are just not sure how to build. Some of these people who have an app idea are highly technical professionals like real estate agents, scientists, accountants. These professionals learn to use spreadsheets in their day-to-day work. The spreadsheet is familiar to many people. Spreadsheets are used by young people such as students. Spreadsheet users vary in terms of how familiar they are with the programmability of a spreadsheet, but there are certainly more people who have built complex spreadsheets than there are people who have built complex web applications. Airtable is a tool for making application development easier and more accessible. The Airtable interface is similar to a spreadsheet and can be used for most spreadsheet applications. It can also serve as a rich back-end database system to improve the productivity of software developers who are fully capable of building web applications. In Airtable, there are high-level programmable components called blocks, and there are integrations with developer APIs like Twilio and Stripe. Airtable has a permissions and collaboration system that allows interaction between engineers who might be using Airtable as a programmatic transactional database and operations members who might need to read or edit specific parts of the data on an ad hoc basis. This makes it quite a fresh and differentiated unified system for doing programming and all kinds of other things that need to be done within a business. Howie Liu is the CEO of Airtable, and he joins the show to talk about his vision for the product and the engineering problems that he has worked on to realize that vision. Airtable has not been trivial to build. It has required its own custom database backend and its own JavaScript rendering system, which is why this is one of the crazier interviews that we've done on Software Engineering Daily. I I really enjoyed this conversation because there's a degree of technical depth and a degree of just product strategy that is instructive and pretty different than any other interview I've ever done. I want to give a special thanks to Gareth Pronovost, who is a full-time Airtable expert that I found on YouTube. He was generous enough to take some time to have a call with me and describe his personal experience using Airtable. He's a highly qualified technical professional that has shifted to becoming a full-time Airtable consultant and expert, and the fact that there is a full profession around creating Airtable applications speaks to how unique this platform is, and I am just very intrigued by Airtable. So I hope you enjoy this episode as well. Howie Lou, you're the CEO of Airtable. Welcome to Software Engineering Hi. Daily. Thanks for having me. Yes, great to have you. Airtable came out of your top-down idea of making software engineering more accessible. You could have started lower level. You could have made a programming language. You could have started higher level. You could have played with like a WYSIWYG site builder thing, like a Squarespace. 
How did you settle on a spreadsheet-like interface as the right place to start a low-code platform? Yeah. So, you know, we put the emphasis really on the fact that it was a relational database that happened to have a spreadsheet interface, not the other way around. And I think that the important distinction there is relational data is sort of this ideal way to represent information. I mean, it's literally mathematically ideal for representing sets of, you know, whether it's contacts and companies or cars and manufacturers, but just real-world information that has relationships with each other. And I think that, you know, if you actually look around at useful apps that are built today, and not just the, the kind of consumer-facing ones like Snapchat, etc., really like the majority of apps out there which are either internal to a company or, you know, kind of useful, more utilitarian apps, like 99% of the value usually of the app is just the data model. It's the the kind of database. Um, when you get a CRM, it's the fact that it's, you know, got the, the contacts and the companies and the deals table. So, so really, I think, you know, is a sort of pretty apparent place for us to start um, building this, you know, if you think about the model view controller abstraction of, of uh, software development, kind of starting with the model layer, because I think that was both intuitive to the end user, but also where the bulk of the value for, for many apps is. Model view controller is one way you could look at it. Another way is in order to build a computer, you need storage, state management, and computation. What's the computation side of Airtable? Yeah. So part of it is you, um, the human, as in I think a lot of the use cases for, for Airtable or the way that we see Airtable being used in the wild by our customers is to have you know this really great friendly database that anybody can come in and manipulate, change the schema, add data, but then they can themselves in like the real world as sort of this like asynchronous human driven computation process, like, you know, do stuff with that data, right? So for instance, if you're a video production company and, you know, each row represents some scene or shot of a production, then the computation is like you go out there in the real world and you shoot the scene and then you come back and then you update it uh, in the database. But then I think more literally, we introduced about a year ago, we call our blocks add-ons. And blocks are basically miniature apps that run on top of each of your end user databases and actually do perform computation on top of it. So it could be, you know, actually going and doing batch updates. It could be, you know, um, actually processing images and other content via, you know, like AI, um, API, like Google Cloud Vision, and then returning the results into the, the records or visualizing in a different way. As a developer, I look at Airtable and I am almost intimidated by the amount of possibility from it. So, and what I mean by that is, I don't feel like I even have the workflows ingrained. Like, I'm thinking in terms of like microservices and continuous delivery and stand up a thing over here and connect it to this thing over here and this workflow that I know at this point is basically inefficient. Like, I should be excited about a low-code platform. Why am I intimidated by it? Yeah, well, it sounds like we failed a little bit in our in our goal of making the product very, you know, kind of delightful and, and, and accessible. But, you know, I think the goal really is for Airtable to feel like a Lego kit. And as, as real Legos are, are marketed, you know, both in um, kind of this generic, like you can buy the box of just all the different jumbled, you know, colors and shapes, or you can buy, all, buy one of the pre-made kind of templates, right? You can get like the Star Wars or 
the the treehouse Lego kit when it gives you instructions on how to assemble it. And so I think depending on what you're trying to do and, and how much of the like kind of blank canvas you want to start with, we can give you a different, either more prescriptive or less prescriptive experience. And so we have templates, we have what we call Airtable Universes, which, which is real templates or bases that other people have shared from their actual real life usage of Airtable. Let's say I want to build a photo sharing app. Yeah. Tell me how to do that with low code. Yeah, so, I want mobile apps. I want a website. Yeah. So you probably wouldn't use Airtable for that. I mean, you could, but it would be a little bit of a stretch beyond its intended purpose. Because, you know, I think there's, you know, kind of if you draw the line between, you know, building software, building something like a photo sharing app, building the next Instagram, which is meant to be like a massively consumer product versus building, you know, really software that's useful for you, your own personal hobbies or work use cases, et cetera. You know, we're squarely optimizing for the latter. So it's more like, I think the CRM use case is a good example where, you know, that's, you know, you, you want to build the perfect way for your company to manage your customers and, you know, your inventory, let's say, or your, your sales. And, and your company has a slight different way of doing that than every other company out there. That's the kind of software that you would build with Airtable. But I could build like a photo sharing. I could see like, let's say I'm a influencer marketing company. I want to make a all-in-one influencer marketing platform combination photo sharing app. And in order to do that, I need some layer that is accessible by these highly technical but non-coding marketing people within the organization, it would be great if they could go into a spreadsheet-like interface and easily see all the activity that takes place across my photo sharing platform. Why wouldn't I just like set up like AWS Lambdas as the back end and just like I'm, maybe I make a, a, a some low-code mobile apps yeah. as the front end and, and I just have AWS Lambda as glue between Airtable as my back end and photo sharing app as my front end. Yeah. So you could do that. And in fact, I think that falls into a, a category of use case where Airtable is sort of like the CMS, if you will. Yeah. So it's kind of, you know, the, it's got this GUI where, let's say, the non-technical internal employees can come in and manage or view content. But then that content is also published, you know, in a much more massively consumer way with some other, let's say, custom iPhone and Android app that you've made, right? Um, I think the, the key thing that you would need there, which people have done, is to build your own own caching layer. So, you know, basically uh, Airtable's API isn't designed to be consumed directly by, you know, like millions of, you know, it depends on how, how uh, successful Could your, you make a, your consumer uh, app a, is. Could you make a cache in a block? Would that be a good application yeah. of a block? So, yes. And in fact, I think, you know, the goal for blocks, um, right now blocks can only be built by, by Airtable. So we've built 30-ish blocks. But we've kind of, from day one, built them in a way where we can enable anybody else to build them. So, you know, as opposed to hard coding these blocks as like just you know, chunks of code that are glued into our, our main code base, we've actually developed from day one, you know, kind of a developer platform, but just one that only we have access to, to build blocks. Um, and eventually the goal is to enable you or anybody else to go in and build your own blocks. And so, yes, the, the short answer is, I think that would be absolutely one of the uh, potential use cases for it. I think there are other things we could do around, for instance, you know, I think there's a lot of really cool stuff out there in, let's say, the, the React ecosystem. And I think, you know, we can basically enable you to plug a lot of those uh, React components, you know, especially if you can deploy them not just to the web, but also via React Native to your your kind of, you know, custom mobile apps, you know, with zero effort. And then all of that, you know, work actually can draw on 
you know, arguably one of the hardest parts uh, of an app to build is like the data layer, especially if you want a real-time data layer, right? And so we've kind of done all that for you and you would be able to go and just define the view layer, if you will, and then have that, you know, kind of piece together the, the components, build the ones that you want, and then kind of have your own custom interface to it. What else do you need to get the full software development yeah. lifecycle? You mean in the, the kind of bigger vision of, yeah. of Airtable? Yeah, yeah. You know, there, there's kind of the full software development lifecycle as we know it today. But I think that there's also kind of this idea of like, opening up an entirely new class of, uh, you know, kind of software that can be built and and especially by non-developers, right? So I think, you know, if you kind of compare Airtable one for one against the traditional way of, of actually writing code and, and building software, then, you know, we're not going to have in the immediate term some of the things you have in traditional development, right? You, know, you don't have necessarily, you know, something like a uh, version control system, right? You can't fork, you know, an Airtable, although you can duplicate a base and kind of get this kind of makeshift way of, of uh, creating uh, different copies and, and kind of forking you have revision of that. history? We do on a on a row level as well as you know basically there's something that is kind of like Apple Time Machine for a base so mm-hmm. there's kind of snapshots over time but we don't have this idea of like you can group together a bunch of changes into a transactional commit let's say and then fork it but I think also you know, it's it's not necessarily the intent of Airtable to kind of come in and one for one replace traditional software development. And for a large class of useful software, even ones that you know can be built, you know, even if you're a you know a software engineer and could write your own software, I think um, a lot of times it's not desirable to go and step down to that low level totally. of abstraction, right? And so you know, I think you're what talking we my hope language, to, yeah. by the way. Yeah, I mean, we have all kinds of internal use cases of Airtable. I mean, like literally hundreds of Airtables that that we use. But like you know, as as an Example, one of them is to basically, uh, you know, kind of create our own homegrown version of a Circle CI type of interface, right? And you can see all the different builds, each of which is a record in Airtable, and you know, you can do things like set a different uh, status on them and, and have them, you know, rebuild, etc. You know, and that's an example of something where like we wouldn't have wanted to go and like build that from scratch, but here we got to just build the connective glue, you know, just build like effectively that lambda that connects it to the actual, you know, build servers um, to then be able to visualize it in this sort of CMS layer. So I think, you know, if our goal is not to replace traditional software development one for one, but to, you know, kind of create a new category of uh, easier software creation, I think we get away with, with not having every single one of those traditional pieces like version control. You've talked to people who have built spreadsheet products in the past. What are the fundamental engineering problems in building a spreadsheet-like interface? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that we also have the additional challenge of one being real-time collaborative, which of course Google Sheets was the the kind of pioneering innovation there. Really, they they bought you know another company you know and and then kind of turned that into Google Sheets. But not only that, but then also to do so on what really is a relational database structure underneath. And that actually turns out to be harder than even just building a spreadsheet on the web, real-time collaborative, right? But, you know, on, on the traditional spreadsheet side, I think one of the, the challenges is, you know, you have basically a user-defined dependency graph, right? So you can define in a traditional spreadsheet, like any arbitrary cell can be like a formula. And the formula can reference, you know, any other cells or rows or columns wholesale and then perform some calculations. 
information, obviously, on it. And, and effectively, what that means is that there's this user-defined dependency graph. So every time you change any given cell, that cell could cause other cells that have formulas in them to, to change, and that, that those changes could propagate yet to other cells. And so you basically have to represent in an efficient way this dependency graph and, and then have an efficient way of recomputing all those dependencies you know, once one of the underlying or kind of origin you know, kind of cells, uh, source cells, you know, is changed. So I think that's one, one hard part. Traditionally, offline uh, spreadsheets like Excel are basically held entirely in memory, and basically all operations performed are kind of done in this um, single-threaded way. Although, interestingly enough, this is kind of an arcane piece of knowledge I, I picked up along the way. I believe Excel for Mac is single-threaded. So, like it, you know, even if you have like eight cores on your computer, like you're going to wait around for that one core out of eight to be chugging, you know, chugging through all these dependencies. Whereas on on Windows, actually, they've done some more optimizations where in some cases, you can actually parallelize that dependency graph traversion and, and kind of like optimize it for multiple cores. So it actually runs a little bit faster if you have a multi-core uh, CPU. But, you know, I think, you know, there's also a lot of the challenge of just building a performance uh, optimized UX. You know, you're dealing with a highly dense interface, right, with a lot of different things going on, especially if you're building it on the web. Like, there's literally, you know, if you just did the naive thing, you would be rendering like, you know, for a 10,000 by, you know, 100 column spread you'd be rendering like a million de minimis DOM elements and probably much more than that because like each cell would be represented by a few different DOM elements and so on. So there's a lot of performance that you have to do as well. And when you started Airtable, you had this idea and you did a lot of research up front. It seems like you did a lot of architectural planning up front. What did you have to do before you felt comfortable writing the first line of code? Hmm. Well, I think it was a you know a little bit of there was a little bit of concurrency there, right? As in, think that you kind of want to do both at the same time because I think working in the medium, actually going and writing those lines of code, and and not just you know obviously you can spend a lot of time writing code that won't matter. I think picking the right code to write. So in our case, we believe that we could figure out all of the hard backend architectural challenges of creating a real-time collaborative database, right? Um, and, and there are some hard challenges there. Um, you know, you have to, for instance, figure out your own way of handling merge conflicts if two different people are editing the document at the same time or the database at the same time. And you have to do it in a way that's actually more sophisticated or more complicated than the way that Google Sheets works, which is, you know, they have a much simpler data structure. It's a 2D, basically, array. And they have what's called operational transforms, which allow you to then handle a very narrow, effectively, set of primitive operations, you know, if they conflict with any other user during that time. With a relational database, because the data model is just more complicated, you have foreign key relationships, you have different field types, etc. All that stuff makes it harder. All that being said, we didn't think that would be the hard part of Airtable. I mean, we, we figured that was a solvable problem. It wasn't like this mathematically impossible problem. So actually, what we started de-risking when we wrote lines of code was the UX, because the fundamental you know, kind of, I think, observation that we had as we went and talked to people who had worked in the space, you know, people who worked on Microsoft products in the space, or people who had worked on independent companies in the kind of like, you know, let's reinvent um, spreadsheets or let's reinvent databases um, type field was actually like, 
you know, that it would be very, very easy to fall short of building a database that really anyone could use, you know, and instead end up with like kind of a clunky heavyweight product that has to be, you know, kind of IT or admin driven, right? And there's so many products out there in the world that are databases that are admin driven. I mean, there's an entire category that Foresters and Gartners identifies as the low code application platforms market, right? Um, that, that you hinted at before. But I think every single product in that category is basically super clunky and, you know, not something that your typical business and user and frankly not even something that like most software developers will be able to pick up in like a few minutes or even like a few hours like you have to read a manual and so the biggest you know kind of de-risking that we wanted to do was like can we actually go and figure out the ux for for this product that isn't just a spreadsheet it's actually like this full-on relational database masquerading as a spreadsheet and get the ux so nailed that any end user can come in and, and figure it out and and so doing a lot of kind of user studies and and building prototypes first as opposed to, you know, kind of just dashing off and, and architecting the back end. Did you have a clear vision for the blocks interface even at that point? I think we had a pretty clear idea of adding dynamic functionality to Airtable. So, you know, we knew that we would start with this relational database and then we wanted to introduce, you know, kind of the ability for people to kind of layer on top of it custom interfaces, custom, you know, kind of workflows and functionality. You know, I don't think we had like the exact, you know, pixel perfect idea of blocks at the time. And actually a a few, you know, technological developments happened between the very starting days of Airtable, um, like 2012, 13. and, And and then when we actually built blocks, which is, you know, for one, uh, proliferation of React and the ecosystem there really happened. And it just created this really clean. I mean, we could have done blocks without React. And, and um, what are you doing, you know, Backbone? Well, blocks didn't exist before well, React. For, right? for the like, spreadsheet. So we actually used our own, you know, framework. We built our own for a number of reasons. You know, I think we, we now use React, you know, at the edges, you know, but but I think that actually there are... So you still kind of use your there own... There are some benefits to... I mean, there are a lot of benefits to the way that we do it. You know, for instance, I think there are some performance advantages in being able to handle, you know, the exact, you know, re-render cycle. Um, and, and, you know, we have like optimizations that actually, you know, there are actually, you know, kind of ways to control the repaints and reflows and and so on and you can do that stuff in react but like sometimes because react is meant more for like a you know kind of a fire and forget approach of just it figures out efficiently how to kind of change the most efficient set of operations we needed to actually have have more control over that um, you think you could ever open source that framework because that sounds like something that there's a lot of applications for especially with like as WebAssembly proliferates and like you get more of these crazy highly interactive front end stuff I mean, I think there's kind of two answers to that. One is like, it's pretty idiosyncratic to our needs. So I think if we were to even come close to open sourcing it, I think it would actually require a ton of effort. Like we would basically be, you know, end up kind of creating a uh, completely new framework that happens yeah. to be inspired by some of the concepts in there. And, uh, you know, I think... Well, you're, you're blessed yeah. with many greenfield opportunities. Sure. <laughs> many greenfield opportunities. Yeah. yeah. Getting more concrete, less speculative. What is the underlying database for an Airtable base? 
So it's actually our own. So, you know, if you look at, for instance, Google Sheets, Google Docs, there's not some open source or, or off the shelf, you know, kind of document engine they're using for that, right? Like they had to build their own. And so similarly, we had to build our own because, you know, we can't, for instance, you know, actually when we prototyped Airtable and we were more focused on the front end before we built the back end, I think for a while we did have an intentionally kind of hacky solution where we actually literally would go and create like a MySQL table that mapped one-to-one to every end user table, right? So like if you had a table called contacts with like a name, first name, last name, we'd actually be running create and alter table commands underneath to represent that as one-for-one as as a MySQL table. But as it turns out, like that's actually, we knew that that would never be kind of the scalable solution or the, the kind of workable solution because, you know, just as one example, if you have, you know, a long dependency graph in a database, um, you know, for us that comes through, we have a formula field that can draw on other fields, you know, much like a spreadsheet formula. But then we also have implicit dependencies in the form of foreign key relationships, right? So if you have, we don't call it foreign keys in the UI, but if you have a linked table, you know, so contacts linked to accounts, then, you know, when you change a record on one side, on, on the contact side, then you have to update, you know, sometimes you have to update something on the account side because you can have lookups and rollups that draw from that foreign key relationship, right? Um, so all that is to say, you know, if for every traversion of the dependency graph, like as we propagate, you know, a change through every node in that graph, we had to go and make another, you know, kind of hard database query to pull the data for that cell and then kind of update it and then write it back and then go to the next cell and so on, it would just be way, way, way too slow and expensive, right? Like there's the the kind of famous list of like 10 numbers, you know, it's like the, the latency speed, I think in like the ca- L1 cache of the, the processor, the L2 cache, like the, the RAM, the hard drive, network latency, et cetera. And, and effectively, like, you'd be paying this like massive overhead for every single one of these traversions back and forth to this MySQL database. You know, you might have to do that like a hundred times or more within like a single keystroke of the end user. So it was pretty obvious to us early on that, that we had to build our own effectively like document engine um, like what Google Docs has, but, but unlike Google Docs, actually supporting a full relational data model in it. You couldn't take anything off the shelf, or was it like take a storage engine off the shelf? No, or something? I mean I think there were a few learnings here. I mean, one, we actually spent a long period actually literally reading up on on academic papers about how spreadsheets were implemented. We also looked at and we did look at the open source stuff or or the off the shelf things. So you know, Meteor JS and um, Firebase. I think Rethink DB had come out. We looked at um, we did a lot of uh, research into uh, Michael Stonebreaker had um, yeah Volt DB uh, which uh, yeah I don't know if it's still around. Um, it's still around. Um, okay, cool. You know and and like. Like generally, like looked at a lot of like his talks and other people's you know kind of talks on on the topic, and it ultimately came to the conclusion that obviously there it's a little bit of a bold bet to take to kind of build your own data store, right? But ultimately you know, every database, every data store kind of makes its own trade-offs, right? You know, and and not just like, you know, in the simplistic, like kind of cap theorem uh, terms, but like even more like idiosyncratic trade-offs and has its own capabilities. And like, if you look at RethinkDB, they support a certain set of applications and use cases, but not others, right? Well, um, MemSQL, same and, and, uh, and so on. So, you know, we kind of came to this conclusion that like, 
if we were building a one-off kind of vertical application, like if we were building just a CRM for, let's say, uh, pet shop owners, then it would not at all have made sense to make the investment into our own database engine. Like we probably should have used something off the shelf, even if it only had like 60% of what we needed. Given that like, you know, it was pretty core to the entire business and the product, right? And we also wanted to build something that the product experience would either be limited by or enabled by, you know, the nature of this data store. Like literally, you know, as I described this, you know, dependency graph performance issue, you know, we had to have a database that would work really, really well, you know, for for the needs that we expected our end users to have. And also because I think we, you know, we're basically a vertically integrated product, right? As in, if you were going out and designing your own developer database like Volt or Rethink or so on, you know, the challenge is, you know, you have to support a wide range of different developer use cases on top of it, right? Um, For us, we have to support a wide range of end user use cases, but, you know, we only have to support one developer on top of our own database engine, right? Which is us. Effectively, we create the only front end that's allowed to talk to directly to our data storage engine. Like we're building that, you know, kind of end user interface. And so I think we can actually make a lot more, you know, kind of vertically integrated decisions around what types of behavior that database engine can and can't support and where we make trade-offs and and so on. I want to take you out of the technical for a moment and sure. and go strategic because I think you have the biggest technical moat of perhaps any company that I have talked to like aside from you know an AWS or something but you're in very early days like you've built your own database you've built your own front-end JavaScript serving layer, which absolutely makes sense for your domain-specific use case. You have a design mode also, like very distinct design, and like the blocks is going to be an additional mode on top of that. You got moats on top of moats. How does that affect your strategy? Like, obviously, it's, you know, a serious matter of not dropping the ball, getting the culture right. Tell me about your strategic thinking at this moment. Yeah, so it's a great question. I think there's certainly, you know, some amount of luck as well as hard work on behalf of the team, you know, that that got us where we are. But I think it was somewhat intentional, you know, when we started working on on the product, you know, and, and before we even did write that first line of code, I think, you know, we thought long and hard about the type of company we wanted to build, right? And I think that generally markets are are you know, eventually efficient, right? Like kind of like eventually consistent, kind of like eventually efficient, right? As in, you know, any sufficiently lucrative or, you know, potent market opportunity, like you're probably not going to be the only entrepreneur who comes up with the idea or recognizes the idea, unless it's like super vertically deep, like it's some, you know, thing that requires like years of R&D, let's say, you know, like a lot of like the biotech stuff, for instance, where, you you know, you actually have like this, you know, uh, deep insight that nobody else has into a new type of drug or, or biotech. Um, you know, but I think generally speaking for consumer software, like probably you're not the first one to have thought of, you know, some concept, right? And then it's a question of like, you know, even if you go and, and build this thing, like how are you going to be the one to succeed? Why, why you and why this company? So we sort of intentionally wanted to build a company where, you know, we could really take a slower, more deliberate approach to investing into something that just had a pretty, 
you know, high execution bar, right? And so, you know, if you build a super simple, let's say, social messaging app, now obviously there, there's some like challenges of scaling that up, but like it's pretty easy to build the V1 of like, let's say a Twitter. And, like, I mean, literally the, the product was built in a weekend, right? And that's not to demean the value of it. And I think it's, it's a great company today, but like it means you're going to have a really, really, really stressful, you know, kind of early time um, because anybody else could literally go and spend also a weekend building it. And, and for Airtable, like it was sort of deliberate that we picked a domain where we felt like great design and not design in a just like visual or even interaction or even UX sense, but like holistic design, which I, I include like software engineering into that, really thinking about like the problem to be solved, the human opportunity, um, the human problem to be solved, and then kind of, you know, aligning all of the engineering effort, all of the, you know, kind of actual front end interface design effort, all of even the go to market strategy effort around to kind of come up with the perfect elegant solution, even if that uh, that took us a long time, then would allow us to to have like a less stressful, though still pretty intense, I think, execution environment later. So, you know, we spent three years building this initial product before even launching. And, you know, by contrast, like my first company that I worked on, you know, it was a year literally from start to finish. Like, so I spent three years longer uh, or three times longer just getting this, this you know, Airtable to, to launch than I did on the entirety of, of this last company. And the reason was because we felt that the market opportunity was profoundly large and that those three years would actually, you know, kind of buy us a kind of more competitive advantage and, and less stress down the road. So I think now enables us to think longer term. Like, I do think there is, you know, there, there's certainly going to be competition down the road and and the most viable competition will come from the larger companies, you know, your Amazons and Microsofts and, and Googles. But because it's not something that, you know, anyone could replicate overnight, we can be more thoughtful in terms of designing our, designing our engineering culture and, and investing into, you know, hard problems that may not pan out for like months or even years. Are you starting to place those speculative bets today? I think, so. well, I mean, I think Blocks itself is one example where we launched what you see as Blocks a year ago, but I think we had been working on that, you know, for over a year, at least before that even. And so, especially at that time as like a 20 or 30 person company, you know, when we started working on it, you know, I think it would be unheard of for most you know, startups uh, to go and and invest in, you know, something that would take a year uh, to launch. We really bit the bullet and and said, this is, you know, core to the vision and it's worth the time investment. And and so I think today, you know, I would say it's actually, you know, it's permeated into everything we do. And when we think about, you know, our our go-to-market or our marketing efforts, you know, we're really not just investing into like payout that we can see in the next month or two months or three months. But for instance, really, you know, kind of designing and building an authentic brand for the company is something that will take years, I think, to, to fully realize, just even start to, to kind of fully realize its value from a business standpoint. And yet, it, you know, it's something that we're actively thinking about now. With Amazon, we see the benefits of starting with a low margin, parsimonious business. With Google, we see the benefits of starting with a money printing machine. Yeah. How do you calibrate your sensibility when you could kind of lean in either direction? Well, I think the natural characteristics of the business 
are definitely higher margin than, you know, kind of the selling commodities early days of, of Amazon. The product, you know, has has very high gross margins in terms of server costs. Um, you know, we're not, for instance, storing massive amounts of data and then kind of reselling or marking that up by a small margin. But, um, but really, like the value is in the application layer. And it's not dependent on, you know, the hard uh, storage costs or the hard computational costs underneath it. So I think we've always tried to focus on creating as much depth of value for our customers as possible. And what that means is rather than focusing on just creating a very thin, thinly valuable product and then scaling that to as many people as possible, we want to both get breadth and depth of value. And so building things like blocks, building, really investing into the functionality of the product so that people can do more things enables us to charge, you know, to charge people a, a price point that we believe is, you know, premium compared to, you know, say a Dropbox or Slack price point, but yet still massively less than, you know, the value that people can create with with Airtable. And so all that is to say, I think, you know, probably a little bit more towards the the high margin side of the world. And, and philosophically, I think rather than trying to like scrape away, you know, little bits and pieces of cost here and there, I think we want to just focus on actually being pound wise and deepening our value proposition so that even more people will happily pay us even more money. You seem to have built a completely positive sum, creative, cooperative type of company, but it's also a competitive business. It's also a thriving business. Is this like a mentality that you would recommend for more business people to adopt or do you think this is like more to do with the domain like is it just a lot is that is that philosophy is that game theory like a luxury of building a high margin business like should uber do that you know i think it's both we definitely gravitated towards i mean the, the way that we built Airtable and even the the problem domain that we selected to work on the fact that we're you know working on Airtable and not just you know we as in me or even you know the co-founding team but really every person at the company like we've all chosen to work on Airtable because of you know partly because of those characteristics right some of those and so i do think we're very fortunate to have the you know kind of the, the fundamentals and competitive dynamics as a company, you know, to be able to take this approach. But I also think that, you know, we've kind of intentionally selected this opportunity because it has um, some of those characteristics, right? Now, I think it really comes down in practice to uh, specifics and and I think there are some things that we can't predict around like competition, right? And what is that going to look like? And, and what are the competitors going to build um, in terms of their product value? And how much more of a greenfield will we have? But I think that this general idea of like creating a product that really tries to empower people and create value for our customers and not, for instance, replace people, you know, it is, is very near and dear to us and, and always will be. And it's something that, that was always very important to me. I don't know if I could have worked on a company where the primary goal, for instance, was to replace humans en masse. I actually uh, had the opportunity in college to work with a robotics professor who was doing some really interesting work in robotics, making, you know, kind of, you know, advancing robotic manufacturing. And, you know, maybe it was like many steps removed from, from actual impact on the world. But I uh, sort of philosophically decided not to, to work on that um, domain just because, it, you know, whether or not somebody else will do it, whether or not
not it's inevitable, like it just felt like something, you know, that I didn't want to put my energy towards, you know, kind of coming up with ways to, you know, basically innovate on technology that replaces people instead of empowers people. Developers always grow resentful of their proprietary tools. What are you going to do when that day comes for you? Well, I think because we're we're not just replacing or or trying to come in and and create, you know, the same kind of value that existing development tools do, the hope is to to create such a new class of, of software value potential that we're not trying to come in and, and kind of steal away or monopolize something that already exists out there. I and guess I think, people don't resent Apple, really. Exactly. And I think Apple is a perfect example of a company that's vertically integrated. And or Photoshop. People don't really resent, yeah. resent Adobe. <laughs> right. Right. And the, the product value of Apple really is a function of how vertically integrated they are. Like, they couldn't have created everything that they created if everything was modular and open source and interchangeable. I mean, that's basically like, you know, the IBM compatible PC ecosystem, right? And so, you know, I think to some extent, like, it's, we're taking this approach not because we want to necessarily it's where the margins control. Are. Um, yeah, but, but I think it's also because we can actually result in a better customer experience through that vertical integration. Yeah. You've done YC twice. If you were to build a YC competitor, where would you start? So actually, just to clarify, Airtable was not a YC company. So oh, it was I've done not? YC just once. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. Um, sorry no about worries. that. And I don't know that I would build a YC competitor. You mean a competitor to YC yeah, as yeah. an institution? Um, I mean, I think YC does a pretty good job of, of what they do. You know, I think there was a brief period where as they really scaled up, I mean, the, the, the when I did it for my prior company, you know, it was still a very small, intimate and kind of almost like a family concept. You know, there yeah. were 10 to 12 companies per batch, you know, maybe like a total of like 100 or 200 founders in the entire alumni network. And, you know, and, and like very much like literally still part of the original like kind of Paul Graham family, right? You know, he was uh, still the primary kind of partner involved in, in the, the program. You know, I think that they've kind of empirically succeeded in, in scaling it up. Um, there are certain things that have changed, um, I would argue, like, you know, for, for uh, differently, if, if not for worse. But there are other parts that have gotten better and, and gotten more systematic and structured. And the resources they offer is, uh, you know, are, are just really powerful, especially for first-time entrepreneurs. So, you know, I, I would not bet on my own ability <laughs> to uh, compete with YC by any means. I, I, that would that would be a, a probably a poor investment if I were to, to uh, have to invest in myself or, or YC. How do developing markets shape your thinking? Developing markets. Uh, Emerging sorry, markets. Oh, okay. sure. Well, I think that, you know, in general, we wanted to work on a problem that was pretty universal, you know, on a, on a humankind level. You know, I think there's a long way that we, we have to go in terms of internationalizing our product at all. I think there are, you know, kind of major questions of, for us of, you know, how do we actually price the product in different markets? You know, where today, frankly, we just haven't had the, the time or resources to to really think about it uh, a whole lot, you know, outside of the, you know, kind of the, the U.S. and English-speaking countries. But I think it's certainly an area of, of opportunity. And and I think the concept of, of Airtable certainly makes sense in uh, many different settings. Howie Lou, thanks for coming on the show. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Wow. 